This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Congress did something really unusual, or at least the Senate did something really unusual just recently. It has decided to cut the number of hours that it's going to be talking. Well, talking about a specific topic, which is the nominations of people for less important offices in the judicial system and in the executive branch. It used to be that anybody could sort of hold up the passage of a nomination or the confirmation of a nomination by just talking for 30 hours. Now they only have two hours to talk. So this is a pretty big change. And to discuss this change with me, I have a true Washington insider, Jeff Bergner, who served as the staff director for the Committee on Foreign Relations and the author of a fascinating new book called The Vanishing Congress, Reflection on Politics in Washington. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. Well, I, let's start off with this question. What is Rule 22? You'll, you know this much better than I do. Explain this to our listeners. Well, you're absolutely correct. There was a piece of extraordinary and uh, actually very infrequent good news this last week. Under the current system that we had in place for considering nominations, even after a filibuster was ended and, and, and the, the talk was cut off, uh, it was still possible for anybody who wished to to talk up to 30 hours more about a nominee, which is a way to continue that filibuster. Uh, 30 hours on the Senate floor is a lifetime, and, and that meant effectively that uh, in this current situation, basically Democrats who were uh, working under the guise of the resistance, uh, resisting all things Trump, uh, were able simply to kill nominees by keeping them in limbo because the majority leader never would have time to consider these nominations. So are the Democrats the only ones who do this, or were the Republicans uh, equally guilty when they were in the minority? I, I, I think both parties have been guilty of this, uh, and it's a process that began in the 1970s, and it seems to be getting worse every go-round. Uh, it has really, I think, been taken to a new level of outrageousness, really, with the, with the effort to simply oppose all nominees just because they're nominees of the Trump administration. Uh, that that goes well beyond anything that Republicans or Democrats had done before. And so we've been moving in a kind of a long-term secular way to making this nomination confirmation process harder. This was a great leap forward to resistance, and now I think it's been checked a bit. Well, but the uh, Democrats will say, look, we didn't start this. Uh, the Republicans uh, held up the uh, nomination of the uh, uh, justice of the Supreme Court for for uh, almost an entire year saying that uh, uh, the issue wouldn't even be brought to a vote uh, at a time when Obama was president and the Republicans had the majority in the Senate and all we are doing is simply uh, doing what they did to us. I, I think both parties say that constantly and, and there is some truth to what both parties say. <coughs> it strikes me though that uh, this uh, resistance kind of approach is actually a more systematic way of, of failing to consider nominees uh, than we've seen at any point beforehand. Never have there been so many nominees backed up on the Senate executive calendar as we've had in the last year or two. So, yes, both parties are guilty. Republicans held off Merrick Garland, so he never did get considered, never did get a vote up or down. 
this has now been, in a way, generalized by uh, the Democratic senators uh, in such a way that they neither have to vote for nor against anybody. They simply prevent it from coming forward. Well, this is just one of many criticisms that you make. And so I really have to, first of all, ask you, what do you mean by the vanishing Congress? In what sense is Congress vanishing? Well, I think Congress has lost a great deal of its power over the last 30 or 40 years. I trace a lot of this to different actions that were taken in the 1970s. Um, and it has, in some cases, defaulted and given power to the executive branch and to the courts. Uh, in other cases, it simply handed it overwhelmingly. And so I think Congress really is nowhere near as strong an institution as it once was. Uh, it was, after all, conceived by the framers to be the Article I branch of government, the core, the the heart of, of, of our representative democracy. I, I don't think most people see it that way now. They see it as an obstacle to presidents getting what they want. Yes, well, one of the things you point out is that uh, a lot of what they do in terms of the budget is automatic. They don't ever really actually do anything. Oh, and that's, uh, explain how that works. This is another case in point. Uh, they, about 68% of all federal expenditures now are really off budget. They uh, are not considered every year by the congressional budget process, and they simply continue on year by year. And this, in a way, uh, prevents House members and Senate members from having to vote on Social Security, uh, and it allows the programs to simply run without being touched by them until we come to a crisis point where money is not apparent going forward, and then maybe there's some temporary reconciliation or legislation passed, but it's simply not ever looked at on a year-by-year -year basis to see how uh, these programs are done uh, and whether the trajectory that they're on, which is vastly upward, uh, is really sustainable. One of the points you make is that the authorizing committees don't authorize, and so the education is what we're very interested in in the education podcast. Uh, so what is it that you mean when you say a committee like the Committee on Labor and, and Education in the Senate, it has a longer name than that, I know, but, uh, but that committee no longer, like other authorizing committees, not doing its job. What do you, it, it, what do you mean by really that? The, the yeah. role of these committees is all in their respective areas, education, for example, or agriculture or labor, to, <clears throat> to pass legislation that uh, uh, creates and puts in place the broad programs that the Department of Education is supposed to administer, to execute, uh, and it's supposed to create uh, new problems, reorient uh, the department in whatever way it sees fit, and then to provide a suggested spending cap for all of this. Um, hardly any of the authorizing committees do this anymore, and, and they simply default to the appropriations committees, which are the ones that then provide the real money to each of these departments. Well, you know, the uh, Congress back in, 19, uh, in 2002 uh, passed No Child Left Behind. It was supposed to reauthorize it every five years. It wasn't able to reauthorize anything for uh, 15, well, until 2015, so I guess it was 13 years it took them to, to reauthorize. Um, is that typical? Uh, it's probably better than usual, actually. Uh, it, but yes, in a way it is typical. Um, there used to be a kind of an expectation that committees would provide authorizing legislation every year, or at least every two years. Uh, that simply doesn't happen. The only committees that do that are the Armed Services Committees. Every year they pass an authorization bill 
setting out the Defense Department's goals, its priorities, its weapon systems, its troop strength, and all the rest of it. Uh, they don't leave that to the appropriators to meddle in. Uh, they only want them to appropriate the money. Well, well, you know what uh, Pr President Obama said. He said, well, you know, Congress is doing such a bad job with education that th this law is no longer working. And so I'm just going to say every state can ignore this law if they will instead agree to various rules that I think are better rules than the ones that are. Is it, how can Congress let a president do something like that? It's a good question because this is a, such a dubious constitutional premise <clears throat> for a constitutional lawyer, as President Obama uh, always said he was, uh, it is not following that because the Congress is not acting, therefore I can. There's nothing in the Constitution that suggests that when the Congress doesn't do its job, the president can do it for him. Uh, quite to the contrary. Um, but presidents do, in fairness, find that the field is open and uh, there's some running room there, and, and they move into it very, very briskly. And, uh, of course, and Congress could always have marched in and corrected for that, but not, they didn't. They just sat on the sidelines and said, yeah, okay. At, at, at every point, Congress could do pretty much whatever it wants if it had sufficient votes to do it or sufficient intention even to do it. Yes. So why don't they have the intention to do it? Well, Congress has become... <coughs> In a, it's in a cyclical way, I think, become very uh, weak and ineffective because it's made its own rules so complex that they can't really get much of anything done. Uh, and then they're perfectly happy to see other people do that work because that makes their job a little easier. They can then come behind and kibitz on what other departments and agencies are doing rather than to do the harder work themselves. And so we've been in a kind of a downward cycle like this. And uh, my proposals in this book are not uh, necessarily a panacea, but they're meant to kind of uh, allow Congress, uh, uh, by changing its rules, to make its own work easier to do, and, and thus, in a way, maybe give them some incentive not to, to, to deploy power and, and, and devolve power. Uh, to other institutions like the presidency and the executive branch. Well, if they do give power to the president and then the president gets into trouble, then they can uh, complain of, about the department or complain about the agency or they, uh, like we have with this uh, 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 tragedy with the uh, Boeing plane going down and uh, was FAA doing a good job? And Why didn't, you know, and, so and, they and love that, right? They like nothing better than to come behind and criticize uh, especially the executive branch for what it's doing. Um, <clears throat> there, Congress is supposed to conduct what's called oversight. So the education committee should have a look from time to time at the laws which they've passed uh, and how are they working. And to look at this in a kind of a straight up way and to see what's working, what's not working, is this what we intended, should we intend something else? Um, that would be a kind of a dispassionate look at their own work. Uh, and at the execution of their own work by the executive branch. But what you see instead is there is virtually no oversight anymore, and what, what passes for oversight is, is really gotcha politics, uh, waiting till somebody screws up something that they think they can catch them on and then call them up and berate them. That's not real oversight. That, that's something else, and it, it's, it's really uh, under the guise of oversight. Uh, Nothing other than kind of criticism. Uh, you're an amazing individual because you actually criticize yourself. First of all, con members of Congress aren't often 
critical of themselves. Is that is that a fair uh, statement? That's that's more than fair. Yes, it's more than fair. <laughs> I, I, I've spent 40 years working with and around and for and against the Congress, and I could count on one hand the number of times any member of Congress ever said, "Well, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that that way." But but you actually say something critical of, of the staff of the of the. Uh, uh, Senate and and the House. You say there's just too many people helping the members of Congress. I mean, usually when an institution is in trouble, they say they don't have enough staff, they don't have enough help. You're saying Congress has too much help. Yes. Why is that? <clears throat> well, most people uh, would say just what you suggested. I'm a bit of an outlier in this area, I will confess. But it seems to me that the, the more than 10,000 staff that work in personal staff and members' offices and the more than 2,000 committee staff and the hundreds of leadership staff have created a situation in which Congress works so much in the weeds now on things that don't matter. Uh, 12,000 bills introduced every two years in every Congress, mostly at the behest and the uh, origin of staff. Um, I think the uh, institution would be much better off if it introduced a lot less legislation and took more seriously the legislation it did introduce to work at the level where they should be working and make a difference as opposed to this endless number of small, relatively meaningless bills that get introduced and churn up so much time and energy to no particular end. There are only about 2% of all the bills that the uh, uh, congressmen and senators introduce that actually become law. The other 98% are uh, simply ignored, languish, don't become law. Uh, you've taken a position that's almost exactly the opposite of the one that uh, I take in my class on, in American government. I have always said that uh, changing the cloture rule and getting rid of the 60% is going to increase partisanship on Capitol Hill and is going to lead to fuller polarization of our society. And you've stood this argument on its head uh, in this book by saying that actually no, this 60% rule is leading to stagnation and the inability to address problems out there. So why don't you think this would, you, do you really think things, th this would correct things and not make things worse? Well, we are about at the point now where I can't envision the partisanship, the division, the ideological polarization being much worse than it is. Uh, we are now in a state of kind of almost wholesale warfare between the two parties where there's no overlap anymore in their interests to speak of. Uh, and you're seeing big bills pass. Obamacare, for example, with all Democratic votes and no Republican votes. The tax bill passed with all Republican votes and no Democratic votes. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't see that this could become much more partisan than it is. Uh, what it seems to me is that it would at least allow this chamber to work its will in a way that now uh, bills like Obamacare in 2010 or the tax bill in 2017, 18, um, are, are very rare, very rare outcomes because Congress simply can't get things done. It, it can't do anything. It's gridlocked. If you were a conservative or a libertarian, you might say, What's so bad about a do-nothing Congress? Yes, isn't, that's what I was on my mind, actually. Okay. So they can't do anything. Hurrah! Yes. But, and, and I would agree with that fully if Congress were the only institution in Washington, but they're not. And when they don't act, they both leave the field open to and also, in a way, encourage and, 
and devolve power to the president, the executive branch, the independent regulatory agencies, and the courts. And, and, I, and I think, frankly, the bigger threats to our liberties these days come from those folks rather than from a too strong Congress that's passing too many laws that are uh, unconstitutional or, or whatever. I, I, <clears throat> I simply think that uh, this would put some of the partisan, sh partisan debating and, uh, and, and compromise back in the place where it belongs as opposed to uh, allowing it to drift over to the executive branch. Immigration reform is a perfect example. I mean, Congress should have acted on this last year, the year before, three years, five years, 10 years ago. We haven't done anything significant in that field since 1986, which is more than a third of a century, and a lot has changed. If Congress had actually acted on this and compromised and passed the bill, this would have put the parameters out there for what we were doing in immigration policy, and you wouldn't have President Obama with DACA and DAPA doing executive orders or President Trump with his various executive orders. I mean, this, this, we would have a more settled basis for what our immigration policy is and should be as opposed to presidents simply acting flat out unconstitutionally in some cases, in the case of DACA and DAPA, I think. Uh, and and, and uh, it would put the debate back where it belongs, I think, rather than the presidents to do these things. Well, that's very persuasive, but uh, now I, I, I'm wondering whether we should just blame Congress because, you know, the Supreme Court made a very important decision when it took away the legislative veto from Congress and said the administrative agencies can interpret what Congress has passed any way they want, and if Congress doesn't like it, there's nothing they can do about it except try to pass another uh, piece of legislation over the president's veto. Well, this has given the executive branch tremendous power. Do you think that was a bad decision by the Supreme Court? Uh, I, I would agree that it has given the uh, president tremendous power. I, I don't necessarily think it was a bad decision because I see that whole process as a bit unconstitutional myself. <clears throat> I, I think that in this case, the court's ruling did, in a way, cut against the interests of Congress, although there have been other cases where the court has essentially bailed out the Congress. If you look at the line item veto, for example, uh, which the court found to be unconstitutional, this line item veto was giving the president enormous amount of authority to simply go through their spending bills and line out whatever he didn't like. This would cut right to the heart of the congressional power of the purse, which is their principal power. But the court said, no, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. So in that case, they saved the Congress from itself, really. Um, <clears throat> and um, in the case of the uh, legislative veto, they uh, um, probably uh, took a position that was, uh, in a way, harder on Congress than it was on the president. This, this came up very much, for example, in the last week or two with the issue of the national emergency and the wall President Trump wants. Uh, yeah, they could have said, uh, they could have done a legislative veto. Uh, un if under that the had original been, yeah. way this uh, Emergency Powers Act was written in 1976, this was before the legislative veto in 1983. And so it was possible for Congress, by simple majorities, to prevent the president from going forward with this national emergency declaration. But after the uh, Emergency Powers Act was passed, seven years later, the court came down with its legislative veto decision, and now Congress needs two-thirds votes of both houses uh, to prevent the president from going forward. And so, in a way, that isn't exactly Congress's fault that it couldn't stop the president now, because the court certainly made it harder. certainly did, because uh, Congress got simple majorities in both cases, but they couldn't get the two-thirds. Well, what are your suggestions for reform? How... 
how can we get out of this box? Well, I, I think the, the only thing at the end of the day that will work is to basically reform the rules and processes of Congress. Uh, there are many other suggestions about good government, but I think reforming the internal processes and procedures in such a way that they're simplified, uh, in such a way that they become more transparent, and in such a way that they therefore become more accountable. Um, this, I think, is the key. And reforms I propose in my book about the congressional budget process and about staff and about uh, the 60-vote rule and, and, and about the Rule 22, <coughs> all of these things plus a number of others have in common the, the same feature, namely they all aim to um, bring congressional action up out of the uh, darkness in which it sometimes functions, and they also aim to make the process much, much simpler uh, and therefore much more easily understandable. Uh, Jonathan uh, Swift in Gulliver's Travels wrote uh, that public policy should not be something that's so uh, hard and esoteric that only a few people can understand it. I mean, it should be fairly simple and straightforward. What are we spending money on? What programs are we running? How did you vote on this? And and that that is uh, uh, very much uh, unclear the way they proceed now. Very much unclear. But in some ways, their their procedures are are designed to protect congressional power. I think of this omnibus bill that I think you're critical of, which you know I think one of the reasons why they dump everything into one bill because they want to make it really hard for the president to veto. The uh, you know the budget is the one thing Congress still does, and but if the president can veto every little bill that comes down the pike, then even then they're going to have their power undermined. But by piling it all into one big omnibus bill, they're in a in a better bargaining position with the president. Well, I I, I see your point. I I wish that the that that motivation were as clearly the reason for their doing this. It seems to me more a question of Congress just being unable to pass twelve separate. Uh, appropriations bills. They just can't get their act together to do this. Um, and therefore, this some of this every year gets bundled into an omnibus bill. I do think, though, you're correct that <coughs> over time, uh, and I track this with a little chart in my book, there is a, a tendency for the number of bills that pass to be fewer and fewer, but to be slightly longer and slightly longer. Um, and this does, I suppose, make it easier for Congress to play chicken with the president and say, well, if you veto this for some reason, you don't get any of the rest of this. And on the other hand, it makes it easier for the president, too. Um, uh, he, he plays from his end the same game. Um, well, Jeff, this has been a, f a fascinating discussion of a really important book. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I've been speaking with Jeff Bergner, author of an important new book called The Vanishing Congress, Reflections on Politics in Washington. This is Paul Peterson on the Education Exchange. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us on the Education Exchange.